I this is not the game I was at, but I watched a post game news conference for one team from Saturday. They had the head coach and they had three players up there and nobody asked the players any questions. The players, the student athletes never talked. Well, that's not the one I watched because they did ask the players questions and the players were helpful. It's it's often the case like at basketball where there are neutral site games, right? Uh, there's like four team pods and you play a game between uh, two teams on a neutral floor before the host team plays the second game. And it's often that those neutral games, like there is nobody there to ask questions. And uh, that ends up being my job if I'm there. I always tell the SID that if you're going to bring more than one player and the head coach, that you had better have a question yourself that you're going to ask them because I cannot guarantee you that I'm going to be able to sustain your entire news conference by myself. See, I'm the opposite. I think I would probably throw them a question just to make them feel like they didn't waste their time by going, although I'd be wasting my time by uh, by asking a question I don't intend to use. No. That, that you never know, though. <laughs> you never know, though. You sometimes get something uh, good out of those. So No, I totally get well, it. I'm, I, my point is being the exact same way. I don't want to have a kid up there who we're not going to ask questions to, and I... Uh, I'm not always in a position where I'm going to be able to come up with something specific. Otherwise, you know, you are going to get this from me. You're going to get, uh, if it's the team that lost, it's going to be, can you just reflect on your season, reflect on the ride, what brought you here, that sort of thing. You know, that's super generic throwaway question that I'm going to ask you if I don't have anything else. And that's not to say that I don't, that I'm not interested in that answer because I typically am interested in that answer, and I'm interested in letting the student-athlete tell that story. Dumps it over the middle, and this one's going to be intercepted by Nick Sirico. Sirico down the sidelines, the 40, the 30, the 20. It's another house call for Nick Sirico, a pick six for Muhlenberg. I think I could speak for about everyone. The weather was a lot better than we thought it'd be, so it was actually exciting to come out and see what we had in front of us. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of the past stuff that we weren't sure if we'd be able to uh, to execute. Everything, you know, our whole offense was there for us, so it was exciting. First down, ten. Back to pass goes Fulford. They get it over to Hill. Hill stutter steps past the five. Touchdown, Justin Hill! What a play by the junior! Pass complete. Unbelievable. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're in our 12th season of podcasting, 20th season of covering Division Three football, and we're down to eight teams as we welcome you to podcast number 227, where we will talk about week 13 of the 2018 Division Three football season, the edition for November 26th of 2018. Keith, is that the music you were looking for when you were referencing 227 last week? That's it. I hope so, because I have to edit it in post, so I've got uh, one shot to get this right. In the open, you heard uh, Muhlenberg highlight. Uh, you heard uh, Jim Margraff, the head coach at Johns Hopkins, talk about uh, the weather up at uh, Frostburg, Maryland, and then you heard uh, the, the fine folks at WRMU, the student station at uh, Mount Union, with uh, a highlight from uh, their game, their win against center and we're down to as i mentioned eight teams remaining and now it's like reminiscent of the division three baseball world series and not in a good way hang on with me here for you non-college baseball fans 
generally the way the D3 World Series bracket is constructed is they have like a pre-assigned grid, which would say the winner of the New York Regional always would play the winner of the Mid-East Regional or something like that. And that pairing would be decided before the season even started, let alone the postseason. So if you have a situation where one region's six seed advanced and another region's fifth seed moved on and maybe a four seed and a three seed, and then you had four one seeds in the other four regions, there was nothing, nothing preventing those four one seeds from all being on the same side of the bracket and eliminating each other before the best of three championship series at the end. I know this was a long conversation, but hopefully when I got to the point of the best four teams being on the same side of the bracket, it made sense to some people. Yeah, we're in a similarly unbalanced situation here in football. After the big upsets of round one, when number 13, number 12, and number eight lost to lower-ranked teams in the round of 32, and then with the RPI and Johns Hopkins wins over the fourth and sixth-ranked teams coming into the playoffs, we're now left with a lopsided final eight. Muhlenberg, RPI, and Johns Hopkins each earn their way into the round of eight by beating a higher-ranked team, but does anyone who doesn't support one of those teams think any one of them can keep Mountain Union out of the first stag bowl in Texas? Mm. On the other side of the bracket are arguably the next best four remaining teams in the tournament. Certainly the three most likely to give Mountain Union a stag bowl challenge in Mary Harden, Baylor, UW-Whitewater, and St. John's. So, I mean, where we stand is awesome that we got up upsets in rounds one and two. We'll always remember the wins by Randolph-Macon, Muhlenberg, RPI, and Johns Hopkins. But for the latter three there, the hardest work is still ahead because Mountain Union scored 51 in the first half against center and looked like with D'Angelo Fulford back, it could do whatever it wanted. It's going to take a defense like UMHB's or UW-Whitewater's to keep it close. Unless, of course, the, B the Blue Jays, Mules, or Engineers have one more epic upset up their sleeves. That's Keith McMillan. He's the defensive back to my second baseman. I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the editor and publisher of D3Football.com. And uh, we're talking about uh, the first two rounds and then headed into the quarterfinals of the playoffs. We talked about uh, whether the engineers have one more epic upset up their sleeves. I think to get to Mount Union, they'd probably have to pull an upset and then get to Mount Union and pull off another upset. In baseball, they worked on this problem by finally reseeding the championship when it got to the D3 World Series level. And that leads us right into... Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Yeah, this week we'll make right now the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. And our uh, Twitter question comes from Chad Hammonds, at Hammonds, longtime friend of the pod, asking, would the committee ever consider reseeding the bracket after the first two weeks? Yeah, well, I don't know that we've ever discussed this before this Saturday, but it's such a stark difference in the two sides of the bracket. And, and certainly it would be better for D3 football if there was, say, a home game at St. John's and Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater this coming week rather than at Johns Hopkins. Not to say that the Blue Jays didn't earn it or that Muhlenberg RPI didn't earn their spots by beating higher ranked teams. But the, this is why we're having this reseeding discussion. So I don't think it's ever come up before, and, and I don't know if you did it, why you would only do it after the first two weeks. You either reseed after every week or you, or you don't do it at all. But I think the, the biggest thing that kind of makes sense here is we, we don't even get bracket, I mean, site confirmation until Sunday at noon. Now, generally, uh, you can pretty well piece together, Pat, and you'll, you will release the brackets, update the brackets on Saturday night with the expected hosting sites. But if we're going back to the committee and to the NCAA every Saturday night after the games are done anyway to confirm hosting sites, there's no reason why we couldn't slide some some reseeding in there. So it certainly could be done, but it's sort of 
convenient of us to bring this discussion up now when it's not a discussion that we've had for any of the past 20 years. Yeah, I have to say I've never previously been in favor of reseeding the bracket. I we and I think you're right, Keith. We never have talked about reseeding the bracket. So in order to, uh, you know, have a little bit of you know knowledge around this, I uh, went back and uh, got in touch with Jason Danley. He's the guy who ran the NAIA uh, uh, website that was like ours for many years, uh, and and that is how it goes. In the NAIA, you uh, basically there is no bracket. You never really know the road ahead of you. Uh, it, things are set up regionally after this. Uh, I'm going to try to consolidate what he said down into a few sentences. They do seed the top eight teams, and those eight teams each host. Uh, and then when they then they reseed the remaining teams and do the exact same thing. So I threw our situation at him. Let's just say. We had this pure hypothetical here. You have two Minnesota teams, a Texas team, and a Wisconsin team in one half of the bracket. And then you had an Ohio team, a New York team, a Pennsylvania team, and a Maryland team in the other half of the bracket. I asked him, would there be any likelihood that those groups would cross over at the quarterfinals? Uh, and he said, likely not. Here's the thing. I think that if we if we had something like this, yeah, it's easy to go back to the committee since we're already doing this anyway. But now you have... Like every single round's matchup in the hands of a committee, you think about the machinations that that would require. Also, when you think about the fact that Barry is a playoff team that uh, was represented on the, com- on the committee, Brockport is a playoff team that was represented on the committee, Mary Harden Baylor is a playoff team that was represented on the committee. How do we even have those conversations? I think it just becomes so political and so emotionally charged that I think we'd be in a worse situation than we are this week in terms of reaction. Well, here's another argument actually for it, though. If you remember from the Jim Canzaro... ...podcast, I believe that's number 216, uh, where he explains how the committee works. Part of the discussion was thinking more than one round ahead in terms of flights and managing the budget for the uh, for the entire tournament. For those of you who don't know, the NCA picks up the tab for teams to travel more than 500 miles, and all those have to be uh, by air at that point. So the NCA is very budget conscious for for good reason because uh, D3 doesn't have enough gate receipts to to pay for all this. So we are getting uh, the money for the tournament from the NCA. If we're talking about uh, flights. every week, maybe that gives us an opportunity to, to, to do a little better with the first round matchups. Yeah, that is certainly true. I guess that would be a possibility. Uh, the committee or the NCA, of course, uh, picks up all of the travel, not just the stuff over 500 miles. But of course, it's the more than 500 mile travel that is, like you said, by airplane and super duper crazy expensive. You know, you talk about the fact that uh, if we were reseeding after every round, we may not have had we 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 may not have the exact same eight teams left, right? Rather than Muhlenberg and Randolph Macon playing each other this week, potentially you could have seen one of them playing. I don't know where we send them to, but you know we're just kind of spitballing here. Maybe one of them goes to Brockport. That they could still have advanced, obviously. Uh, but it it changes a, a whole lot of things. It's not just a matter of, you know, what do we? What is this mythical bracket look like that might not have St. John's or might not have Johns Hopkins at home? And in any case, like we said, you know, Muhlenberg earned its way here by beating Delaware Valley, which was ranked 13th in the poll at the end of the regular season, and then beat the team that beat the number eight ranked team 
RPI earned its way here with the win over Brockport. Johns Hopkins uh, crushed Frostburg and earned its way here. So each team belongs in the quarterfinals. I just think if you hold this bracket up in front of you and you look at one side says Mount Union, Muhlenberg, RPI, Johns Hopkins, and the other side says Mary Harden, Baylor, St. John's, UW, Whitewater, Bethel, which is in the top 25 poll, team number two, three, five, 11. And on the other side, you got one, 23 unranked and what like 11 13 i guess johns hopkins is so it's it's certainly not balanced but look this is going to happen in a playoffs where you have upsets and and part of what make makes this round so these two rounds so far kind of fun is, is the upsets that we've had johns hopkins at 14 it was not that long ago when we had of course teams cross over at the quarterfinals right we had the year where Hobart went to St. Thomas and Salisbury went to UW-Whitewater uh, rather than Hobart and Salisbury playing and St. Thomas and Whitewater playing. If we had had that, then we'd be talking about, um, again, I'm spitballing it here, we'd be talking about maybe Johns Hopkins at St. John's, something along those lines, and yep. uh, and Whitewater hosting RPI. Yeah, I think if you if you were to match really quickly one versus eight, just of the of the teams left in, in the... Um, Poll, you know, whether you think, I mean, just going by by the top 25 rankings, right? RPI would would go to Mountain Union. Um, seven would be Muhlenberg, and they would go to Mary Harden Baylor, which would be a much different matchup. Um, then St. John's would be the next team in, and they would host Johns Hopkins yeah. or RPI. And then, um, you know, you'd want to avoid the Bethel St. John's game rematch if you could. So Bethel um, would, uh, would travel to Whitewater. Yeah, which is actually the game that's actually happening. So there's one of those that is is the correct matchup. And to be honest, RPI Johns Hopkins is not a bad game. It's just it's just if you're one of the people who wants to see Mountain Union challenged before it gets to Shenandoah, do you believe Muhlenberg RPI Johns Hopkins is able to do that? We'll find out in the next couple of rounds. I was going to say we'll leave that hypothetical uh, to you people out there who are listening to this and probably already screaming into your podcast. I apologize. We don't make the bracket. I had someone give me a hard time on our Facebook page on Saturday because I wasn't, uh, I guess, forceful enough in decrying the way the uh, uh, the the way the bracket is set up and the way the NCAA sets up the bracket. We've been dealing with this for literally 20 years uh, I can't say that, you know, we've, I don't know if we accepted it or come to peace with it. The fact is we can't fix it. It is beyond our purview. Uh, we can continue to remind people that it kind of stinks. And but the only way that it's going to be noticeable to people who care is if we have, you know, a team blow somebody out in the semifinals and then get beaten badly in the national championship game, something like that. Then I think that when you don't have a competitive championship game, and the actual best two teams played in the quarters or the semifinals, then that's when people might begin to pay attention. Yeah, and I think in this case, whatever gripes we have with the bracket and over most of the, the past several years have been with individual first-round matchups or a lack of imagination or the last team that got in we didn't think should be the right team or whatever. But generally, when you get to the quarters and the semis, there are very few opportunities for a team that has a chance to get to the stag bowl. Um, We'll get matched up with somebody earlier in the tournament and get knocked out. But I do think that applies right here. I think St. John's could be a stag bowl team with a different matchup. 
I don't think it's going to uh, go so great for them at Mary Harden Baylor, but you never know. And then if you see St. John's upset Mary Harden Baylor, I mean, I guess that's great because you have a you have a a prominent D three program potentially playing a, either a conference rival or uh, or another prominent D three program in the semifinals, and that's one great semifinal on that side. But again, it's just hard to get excited about the about the ones the games on the other side. Now maybe Muhlenberg, Johns Hopkins, RPI surprise as they've done so far in rounds one and two. I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is open for sponsorship. We've got a big game coming up in a new part of the country for Division Three football coming up at the uh, a couple of weeks from now, right, two and a half weeks. Uh, we've put some feelers out to folks in the Shenandoah, Texas area who might want to reach you guys, the audience, who might be coming to attend, say, Stack Bowl 46, something like that. But if you know someone who uh, would be a good fit for that podcast, let me know. You know who the audience is. These are the people who are the diehard Division Three football fans. There are people who listen to this podcast who are not fans of any team that is currently still in the playoffs that I know will be traveling to the Stag Bowl. You want to get your, uh, your service, your product, your hotel, your restaurant, your pre-gaming or post-gaming spot in front of them, and you can do that by sponsoring D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Think about it. Drop me a line. Glad to take hat tips, right? People uh, send us some ideas of uh, people to contact at places, and we will do that. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. It's time for game balls. And Keith, I'm giving my game ball to Johns Hopkins running back Tyler Messenger. He ran over Frostburg State on Saturday, rushing for three touchdowns in the first 34 minutes, including a 52-yarder that set the tone for that big third quarter in Johns Hopkins' win at Frostburg State. Messenger ran for 148 yards in the third quarter alone and finished with 231 yards and just 16 carries. As good as David Tomorrow was at quarterback... You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, man! Then go ahead. Tomorrow! And he was excellent. Messenger was huge in that crucial third quarter. Well, I, it's definitely a team effort. It's, it's, I'm just running through the holes, and today the O-line really opened up everything. They were fantastic up front in the pass and in the run, and really... I. Dave just gave me the ball, and I just ran through the holes. It was, it was a pretty easy effort, and it's a whole team effort. Have you ever had a day like today in your career? No, I have, I have not. <laughs> What's it like to have a day like this in the playoffs? It's, it's fantastic, and really is the number one thing is that we're moving on to next week, and we have one more game to play as a team, as a group. And I love everybody on this team, and uh, it's fantastic to have one more week with them. Good job getting through that without making one uh, don't shoot the messenger dad joke or messenger bag reference. I'm proud of you. <laughs> oh, yeah, you bet. For my game ball, Muhlenberg's Frankie Feaster had four sacks and seven and a half tackles for losses in the playoff win against Randolph-Macon, which is a decent season number for uh, for some defensive linemen. He was a big reason why the Yellow Jackets were held to 98 yards of total offense and only 21 of those rushing. But I think I'd be remiss not to mention RPI's defense and its five turnovers against Brockport as a game ball candidate as well. The engineers had held All-American quarterback Joe Germanario to 11 of 32 passing for 94 yards, two touchdowns and two interceptions, and a second-half drive chart that went punt, punt, interception, punt, fumble, downs. RPI did that with its offense, only putting up 21 points, enough to win, but not enough to win comfortably. They had to make a big stop at the end of the game, that one on downs. So if I have to give the ball to a player, I'll go Feaster. If I could take a whole unit, RPI defense. And if I can cop out and do both, sign me up. I don't have an audio clip of the entire RPI defense. So here's Ralph Isernia, the engineer's head coach, talking about his team's defensive performance. 
you know, one of the things, one of the things that we've done throughout the course of the year and what's been successful for us has, has been trying to turn the team into one-dimensional, just make them one-dimensional. And, and you have a great running attack uh, with Brockport, but we've been pretty good against the run ourselves throughout the course of the year, not negative three yards rushing, not that type of success, but we've been pretty good, uh, pretty stingy against the run. So we wanted to make them one-dimensional, really try to earn everything uh, that they were going to get. Uh, there were some holes, they made some plays. I, I think their running back went over for 100 yards. But it was, it was trying to make them go a long field. And if they were going to score a touchdown, make them execute a 12, 14, 15 play drive um, that they're going to have to execute each and every play. So um, like I said before, our, our number one goal, number one objective was to, to play one more play harder than they were playing. Uh, and keep doing that and keep telling yourself, hey, we're still in the game, you're still in the game, just make one more play. We'll run through each of the games that were played on Saturday game by game, and we'll start that rundown with the biggest blowout in which Mary Harden Baylor defeated Barry by the score of 75 to 9. Nine times. Jace Hammock only played a little bit early on in the game for the crew before his shoulder started bothering him for uh, UMHB, but they didn't need him much as Denarian Thomas had his best day as a passer this season, and Ryan Redding got his first action of the year behind Thomas. Marquise Duncan had three touchdowns as a backup running back, and that was kind of what the day of, was like for Mary Harden Barrow, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I saw somewhere on, I think, Twitter where you were responding to, to someone who was making light of the score and reminding them that there are only 58 players on the playoff roster. So it's not like you can put too many backups in. And uh, Mary Harden Baylor had uh, three quarterbacks play besides Jace Hammock. So it went as far down the roster, I believe, as it probably could have. For, you know, Mary Harden Baylor, the level of competition is going to take a huge jump next week when it when it um, plays St. John's. But remember that UMHB had to face Harden-Simmons in round one, a thing they did not like at the time but might be thankful for now. Markeith Miller said as much in the postgame that Harden-Simmons helped expose some flaws. So the Johnnies will present quite a challenge offensively, more than Barry did, even with Tate Adcock back in the lineup. UMHB scored 28 in the first quarter. It led 48-0 at the half, and the crew held Barry to 2 of 17 on third downs. That crew is just a cut above other very good programs right now, the same way Mount Union is, and that was evident on Saturday. And the uh, St. John's-Whitworth game, Whitworth did a really good job in the first half, just kind of grinding and moving the clock. It didn't even seem like they had been on the field all that long when they ended up kicking a short field goal, and it was announced that the scoring drive was 22 plays and took 751. And on the opposite side, the Johnnies answered with ridiculous speed. No, 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 light speed is too slow. Light speed too slow? Yes, we're going to have to go right to ludicrous speed. <gasps> ludicrous speed. Okay, sure, ludicrous. 79 yards and 83 seconds is pretty good, no matter what adjective you want to use. That's what it was like in the first half of this game. Whitworth ground out long scoring drives, and St. John's answered quickly, at least until the Johnnies and Pirates traded punts late in the, in the first half. Except uh, Whitworth punted to star return man Max Jackson, who returned it 47 yards into Whitworth territory, and the Johnnies scored two plays later. It was a good reminder that the Johnnies have a lot of ways to beat you. Pat, since you were at this game, I don't have a ton to add, except that it was an appropriate escalation in competition for Jack Jackson Erdman and fam. I don't know if we still know how good Whitworth is because the Johnnies are one of the three or four best teams in the country, and losing to them doesn't mean the Pirates aren't top 15 or maybe even top 10. The highlight here on Saturday was that second quarter when Whitworth's Leif Erickson and Erdman went back and forth with five touchdown passes, the last coming to Will Galak with 14 seconds before the half. That gave the Johnnies a 28-17 lead. They made it 31-17 heading into the fourth before St. John's pulled away. 
The reward, however, instead of a game against the sixth best team remaining, Johns Hopkins, as we mentioned earlier on the podcast, is instead a trip to Texas to play either the first or second best team remaining in the tournament. When I was asked on the Blitz what I wanted to see out of Jackson Erdman on Saturday, I talked about exactly what you mentioned. I wanted to see him continue to do the same thing against a step-up in opponent, and I would say mission accomplished. And of course, this is the first trip to the quarterfinals for St. John's since 2006. This is a program that uh, you know had been accustomed to doing this for quite a while, and then had kind of fallen back a little bit. And the, uh, the players on this team had really taken that as a challenge to get back there this year. And here are... Jackson Erdman and Max Jackson, I think not in that order, talking about this after the game, along with Gary Foshing on Saturday. Uh, I think just coming together as a team, you know, we we had a lot of returning guys and, you know, just had disappointment and we knew we were better than that. So coming in, we just worked worked our butts off of the off season in the weight room and then just different mindset. Uh, like in early morning runs, we'd break it down, Natty, champion, natty Champs on three every time, just having that mindset. Uh, so just that common goal and just working towards it. I also think our, we're more close than it is an entire team this year. Usually most years it's the defense is super close and the offense is super close. Not that we're not connected in any way, but this year it's like everyone can come together and it's not weird at all. And it's just, it's just trust. Like I think Jared said earlier, we all trust each other. And we, I think a big thing for our defense is we trust that our offense is going to go make plays and score. If we get marched down the field like we did today a couple times, we trust that they're going to go back out there and score for us. And that was evident on the sideline, too. I heard, uh, you know, and, and you had to give Whitworth some credit because they found a few things that were working. And I heard our offensive guys, hey, we get back out there, we have to score again. You know, we're going to have to score the next time we get the ball. And, and they did. And I think, uh, and that's kind of been our, what we've done all year. We've uh, just done a great job of finding ways of, of making plays and, and uh, especially when you have to, when you have to make a play, somebody's got to go out and make a play, and we've been able to do that. UW-Whitewater beat St. Norbert 54-21, and we probably wouldn't have predicted that St. Norbert would score the most points that Whitewater has allowed so far this year, matching Platteville's total from the end of the regular season. In fact, Keith, you predicted three points, I predicted nine, but we certainly could have foretold that Whitewater would put things away in the second half, as those who watched our, our Bracket Blitz show heard. Why is it so hard to say Bracket Blitz? we got to come up with a better name for that. Uh, regardless, I think it was big for Whitewater to get Derek Kumaro fully integrated into the offense as uh, Jake's younger brother, a D2 transfer, got hurt early in the season and had just two catches before Saturday. Yeah, this actually came off as a valiant St. Norbert effort to me. It was 34-21 when UW-Whitewater gave the ball to Ronnie Ponick five times in a row to start a fourth-quarter touchdown drive that bumped the lead to 20. And then famous hasty put it out of reach with a 48-yard interception return touchdown on the next play. But it was the right kind of test for UW-Whitewater. It can worry about the 10 penalties for 99 yards and convince itself it has ways it needs to improve. But it also got 158 rushing yards from Alex Pete, 131 from Ponick, and 76 more from Ryan Wisniewski, all at 7.7 yards a pop or more. The Warhawks pounded the rock to the tune of 397 rushing yards. And while a win next week against Bethel is no given, Whitewater has to be happy with how things are looking. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Definitely a, a great effort by St. Norbert. I guess I just thought that it was never really in doubt. Uh, you know, even at the point where St. Norbert came back in the you know late in the first half and scored, and then with uh, it was a uh, you know just a handful of seconds left in the first half, Whitewater answered with that nice little touch uh, at that uh, foot tap in the corner of the end zone by Des Mitchell to uh, put them back up. 
going into the half. I guess I just always thought that Whitewater was going to put it away. The 397 rushing yards on Saturday gets added to the 500 from the first round against Eureka. So those of you math majors at home know that uh, Whitewater's rushed for 897 yards in the postseason so far. North Central and uh, in the North Central loss, 10 tackles in the three sacks for Kyle Kilgore. That guy is having a hell of a year for the Royals at defensive end. This game to me is like the reverse of the St. John's Whitworth game where the back and forth nature, the trading of scores comes in the second half. And in this instance, the team which has the long drives, the long sustained drives comes away with the win. We said this would be the best game of the day. We're actually right about something. Bethel twice extended its fourth quarter lead to 10 points, and both times North Central responded with a touchdown drive to get the lead back down to three. And the Cardinals actually got the ball back with 221 left with 91 yards to go to extend its season. And the Royals didn't so much as give up a first down, much less let it get interesting or North Central get close to field goal range. Bethel remains the wild card of this field because we'd expect a Whitewater win next week, but I wouldn't consider it a gimme. Remember the level of talent that Bethel has has played throughout the season. They've faced off with St. John's, St. Thomas, and and teams of of that caliber. So this step up to Whitewater won't be necessarily a shock to, uh, to the Royals. Moving over to the other side of the bracket where Mountain Union defeated center 51 to 7. Uh, sorry, 51-35 in a misleading final score as uh, center's starters racked up some points, racked up some yards late against the Purple Raider reserves. Mountain Union only ran 51 plays and only needed 326 yards of total offense to come away with the win. And to further underscore how the style of this game differed after halftime, the teams combined for 17 full possessions in the first half and just eight in the second half. Most important for Mountain Union, perhaps, is just getting D'Angelo Fulford back out on the field and getting him off of it again without aggravating his injury. If you're one of those people who doesn't pay attention to Mountain Union until the national semifinals or the Stag Bowl, wait until you lay eyes on this team. As ugly and out of hand as this game got on Saturday, it wasn't boring to watch. You've got an experienced quarterback and two wide receivers who can do a lot of damage in Justin Hill and Jared Ruth. They can go long. They can make plays in short area space. Josh Petroselli, the running back, is a bowling ball in the Nate Kamick mold who can run for a 75-yard touchdown or take a direct snap off tackle for two yards. The defensive line is long and lean and will cause trouble for offensive lines, and the rest of the defense is opportunistic and creates turnovers. Center was working with a backup quarterback who seemed to step slow and a bit off, missed a couple throws that they needed to have in that first half, and whether that was inexperience or the Purple Raiders defense or both, it, it certainly didn't help that game. Uh, become interesting at all. And the bottom line is that even if Mount Union has no trouble getting to the Stag Bowl, whichever very good team emerges from the other side is going to make the national championship matchup a heck of a lot of fun. We need a machine sound effect or a drop or a song. So fans, send us suggestions. Something other than Rage Against the Machine. I understand that's that's easy. That's too easy. The Muhlenberg-Randolph-Macon game, game won by Muhlenberg 35-6. When the playoffs started, neither of us would, of course, have expected the winner to get this far. While we were doing the Blitz on Saturday, I was watching Muhlenberg's team speed, and they were running plays that would have no chance whatsoever, I think, of getting to the edge against Mountain Union, let alone getting around the edge. Uh, But maybe that's more a story for Friday. Well, just as we said last week that RMC played its perfect style game against John Carroll, Muhlenberg took the Yellow Jackets out of that style, and they frankly just aren't talented enough throwing the ball down the field to fall behind 21-6 and win. But the real key was Muhlenberg's defensive performance, putting up another touchdown by Nick Sirico on an interception return. It was Feaster's big day and the fact that it completely shut down Randolph Macon's attack. They only do a couple of things on offense, and even though they disguise it 
once you take them out of those two things, it's like if you're facing a team that runs triple option and you and you nail their triple option plays or the wing tee or whatever. Once you got those plays, Randolph Maker just didn't have much else it could go to because they're they're not built that way. Now we obviously don't want to overlook Muhlenberg's chances next week, especially after a dominant 35-6 win against a team that beat John Carroll. John Carroll's the team that gave Mount Union its toughest test of the season. But the caliber of athlete the Mules just outplayed and the ones they'll face next week are light years apart. So the Mules will have to be crisp just to hang in there. Here's Nate Milne's take on how their defense performed on Saturday. I'm going to apologize in advance for the music track that's in the back of this, as well as the natural sound from some highlights that are B-roll underneath this video. Now, when's the last time you had a defensive game this dominant, would you say? Uh, probably Gettysburg this year. Probably, yeah, probably three weeks ago. Oh, uh, these guys have been great all, all year long. Uh, uh, Frank Feaster, um, uh, just a monster. Again, the Centennial Conference Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, I think absolutely one of the best defensive linemen uh, in the entire country. And then, again, we've got senior leadership out there that is, uh, is really special between Luke and uh, Jack Fitzsimmons and uh, Nate Corville and Mike Blank. Uh, those guys really get after it. Um, and then we compete really hard in practice as well. Moving on to the Brockport RPI game, where three times in four possessions, Brockport began on the RPI side of the field and came up empty. Uh, one of them a fumble, one of the turnovers. The Golden Eagles had one first down the entire third quarter, then went on two sustained drives in the fourth quarter, one of which ended in a fumble. A second one ended with two incomplete passes and a sack of Joe Germanario at the RPI 10-yard line. Yeah, that second-half drive summary is as ugly as they come. And we don't know whether Brockport got caught looking ahead or trying to be what it was last year or just ran into an RPI team rejuvenated by the Dutchman Shoes loss. And for anyone saying we doubted RPI, of course we did. We could only go by what you show us, and that 34-10 L did not inspire confidence. The play on Saturday did, though, and that'll be a memory these RPI players can carry for years, and it'll be part of what we, what we think of when we look back on this year's tournament. As for searching for deeper meaning in what happened to Brockport or what this means for the East region or whatever, maybe let's table that and respect what the engineers did. And now they enter the quarterfinal round with a legitimate chance to advance to the semifinals. And we wrap up this rundown with the game we heard about way back in the open where Johns Hopkins scored 29 consecutive points in the third quarter and rolled past Frostburg State by a 58-27 score. I mentioned Messenger's numbers earlier when I gave him my game ball, so I'm just going to turn this over to Keith for the rest. Well, I'd like to turn it over to Greg Thomas, who was our designated eyes and ears on that game. But in the interest of not creating an awkward point in the podcast where we call Greg and it's way past his bedtime or whatever, let's just say that what jumps out from that game is that third quarter. It's 20 to 19 at halftime. Frostburg gets the second half kick, goes three and out, then a six-play, 95-yard touchdown drive capped by a 52-yard score and two-point conversion for Johns Hopkins. So it's 27-20, Blue Jays. And then Frostburg loses a fumble. The Blue Jays are in the end zone again in six plays. Connor Cox is then intercepted on the second play. And four plays later, David Tamaro throws a 50-yard touchdown pass at Luke McFadden. Frostburg goes six yards backwards. Hopkins scores in two plays. And the route was, well, it had already been on by that time, but still. Anyway, the Bobcats were undone by four turnovers and crappy defense. And they head off for D2 after the season. Meantime, Jim Margraff's staff has been to the second round plenty of times, as you heard if you listened to our previous podcast, 226, so they had a good plan for the week. And he told me one year after Mount Union came to Hopkins for a second round playoff game that the Hopkins attitude is to just try to win the conference, enjoy the season, and then go out and give it your all against these top teams in the country. It's, a, it's an opportunity. 
to test yourself against the best. But you can't help but notice in the shadow of that successful lacrosse program that the Blue Jays could find themselves in the football Final Four for the first time. The teams that will be playing on Saturday, just as a refresher to get to that Final Four or get to the National Semifinals, we have Muhlenberg at Mount Union, we have RPI at Johns Hopkins, Bethel at UW-Whitewater, St. John's at Mary Hardin-Baylor. We will talk about each of those matchups coming up in podcast number 228. We are still do two podcasts because we're still going to do two podcasts. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. We're still going to do every thought of yours. As in mine. Well then. Every thought of yours is a I'm coming out of this one wondering which players improved their Gallardi Trophy position because it was a very stark reminder as Brockport got shut down by RPI on Saturday that Joe Germanario did not. And we talked on the previous podcast about these. There are five players in the uh, Gallardi Trophy discussion of the 13 semifinalists who have an opportunity to uh, to wow the voters, and at least one player did not on Saturday. Yeah, I think uh, I would probably put Brock Rudder in that uh, category as well. Uh, a tough day against a, a really top-notch defense, and he was 12 of 27 for 264 yards, threw a touchdown, uh, you know, lost a bunch of yards on sacks. Just not a great day. Maybe not as bad as Germanario. Um, Jackson Erdman played pretty well. Um, talked about him already doing the same thing he's done already and doing it against uh, somebody better. Uh, I know Danny Robinson had an interception for Mountain Union in the first half of that game. Uh, I saw it on the Blitz. That was a lot of fun. Um, you know, Harry Henschler, the defensive end for UW-Whitewater, didn't do a lot on Saturday, but I don't know what his assignment was against the triple option team, St. Norbert, which threw 31 passes, by the way. It seems like... Uh, and when you talk about, of course, the, the guys who got bounced in, uh, in round one, like Seisha and Lamar Carswell. Uh, I'm not sure that they did anything to help their candidacy either. In other words, if St. John's wins this week, probably going to take a great game from Jackson Erdman to make that happen. And if he does that, maybe he's the guy. And if not, you know, we're all, as voters, we're all looking around or we're going to read through the packets and, and judge on the full breadth of the season and, and not just uh, not just this particular week, but Erdman, Henschler, and Danny Robinson still have a chance to uh, to win over some votes. And, and of course, you never know how many votes have already been turned in. Uh, and of course, the fan vote, we probably, if we have 17,000 people contribute to that fan ballot like we've had previously, then we've probably got uh, two-thirds or three-quarters of those in already as well. So that's the other interesting thing is uh, you and I, I know we hold our ballots as late as possible. I bet... Uh, our colleagues who uh, really follow this stuff probably hold on to them as well, but I'm not sure everybody else does. Yeah, I think you're right. Speaking of nominations and ballots and all those sorts of things and awards, uh, all region nominations for D3Football.com uh, were final on Sunday, but we have a one-day grace period on Monday. Sports information directors, we've talked about this, and I've emailed you back on uh, November 15th and tweeted a couple of times, and we're working through the conference offices on Monday but please be aware, I start a new day job on Monday, and I will not be answering your emergency tech support requests immediately. So hopefully uh, either you could be patient or you have at some point nominated anybody ever and you still have that login info. And I was going to say, though, even though I have a new day job and I'll be working 40 plus hours a week for the purposes of paying the mortgage, which is important, 
Uh, we'll continue to get as much D3Football.com content out as possible. That includes still, like I said, two podcasts a week for the remainder of the season. So keep an eye out for 228 in your podcast feed on Friday, November 30th. So this is usually the time of year where D3 players will get invited to various all-star games around the country. And uh, a lot of times they are pay-for-play all-star games, which means basically, you know, they, they may either get your name off a list or they get a, some recommendations from coaches. But it's uh, there, there are certain all-star games which they specifically select a team of these guys we want to see play. And then there are other ones where they sort of mass mail out um, signups, I guess, for the forms, for lack of a better way. And I'm sure, you know, we did it on paper back in the 90s, but I'm sure it's all done online now. But uh, basically anyone who wants to play one more football game and wants to travel to a different locale, get seen maybe by some some uh, low-level scouts, you get that opportunity. But, um, you know, sometimes they – first of all, this year I've, I've heard – less about those particular games than we've had in several years. And, and there was a point where we actually had a pretty respectable D3 focused all-star game that was taking place in Salem. And uh, there were some other ones around the country, you know, one in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And there were some that were um, happening later in the year, you know, after Stag Bowl, Christmas break, winter break, there would be games uh, in January and in the spring. But I would encourage anyone out there who gets an invitation to one of those and who happens to be listening right now to, to do your research. There are some uh, horror stories we could dig up from from some players who have uh, been around D3 boards over the years and who got, you know, didn't get everything they were promised. And um, I think I would go into that personally with the all-star experience of just saying, hey, this is one more chance for me to play a football game, meet some meet some guys and not to have uh, expectations that are that are too big, whether whether it's in the form of you know, going to a combine or um, having this be a stepping stone into a, a playing professional football for you. Not saying that it can't happen, but generally the scouts find you and uh, and you'll get invited to something like that or or, or um, they, they will come to you rather than you find that an all, at an all star game. But uh, it, it was for me, it was a. It, when I went, we played in Miami, we played in the old Orange Bowl, so it was a fun experience and it was worth the money, even though it wasn't everything it was uh, billed to be. And one more thing before we go. This happened on uh, Wednesday night after we had recorded the last podcast and we didn't find out about it until Thanksgiving morning. But how about we just give it up for a second for uh, Ruben Clark. That's the uh, freshman offensive lineman for RPI with uh, his quick thinking save passengers on a runaway Amtrak train. Yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, RPI's defense, and that was probably the best defensive player move of the week from an RPI <laughs> player. Uh, you got to read the story to, to get the details. It's on the, the website. It's probably the, the best way to get it. But, yeah, that's a real uh, home for the holidays um, fairy tale, and it happened in real life. Yeah, pretty freaking cool. Congratulations, young man. I know he's a guy who I'm not sure makes the made the 58 man roster for the uh, the playoff game on Saturday, but uh, certainly one of the uh, most talked about RPI football players, uh, certainly in the mainstream media this week. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 227, season 12, episode 28, released on November 26th of 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. We've got some great features planned for the course of this week, so uh, keep an eye out for those. 
If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. And you can leave comments for us on the blog page as well. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Pullman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to everyone, uh, all those schools who posted post-game news conferences uh, for their assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. Whoever they play, whether it's Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor, or outside chance, St. John's. I mean, if it's Mary Harden, Baylor, or Mount Union again, it should be a much better game than last year. You think there'll be, well, it won't be 26 degrees. That's a start. Thank you so much, everybody.